But let me begin with what may seem a strange question uh, in relation to our topic, but I will come to it by a kind of a roundabout way. Is the Atkins diet good for you or bad for you? For those who don't know, the diet, named after its founder, Dr. Robert Atkins, claims to produce dramatic weight loss if you avoid carbohydrates and eat lots of fat and protein. Now, there's been a lot of controversy sparked again this week about the diet, which is followed by millions of people, including stars like Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, for the older ones. Well, now I won't explain who they are, never mind. Um, it was sparked into life again this week when it was claimed that high-protein diets could damage your kidneys. Uh, Dr. Susan Jebb of the Medical Research Council claimed that the Atkins diet could lead to kidney damage, heart disease, osteoporosis, and high cholesterol. Now, I don't know how many, if any of you, follow it. I haven't noticed any dramatic loss among the regular uh, attenders, but there again, it may be so dramatic that I've not seen you at all, but who knows? And I have to say that I possess no authority whatsoever to say whether it is good or bad, and that's not part of my remit. However, now to the point. I do possess some authority on another matter concerning what you eat and drink. Did you know that eating bread and drinking wine with other Christians in what is known as communion or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, whatever church background you come from, did you know it can be bad for your health? And that people have even been known to die as a result. Now, my authority for saying this is impeccable, because you find it in this book, in the Bible. In a letter written by a man named Paul, who was a messenger or apostle of Jesus Christ, and his letter was written to some Christians who lived in the Greek city of Corinth, and in it he said, your services, when you have communion, do more harm than good. Now, as many of us claim to be Christians and take part in such services, and others may be thinking of becoming Christians and taking part, it would be good for our health to find out what he said and why he said it. So let's turn then to the passage in question, which you'll find in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Now, if you don't know the Bible, it's page 1152, if you've got one of these pew Bibles. 1,152. If you've not got a pew Bible, it's near the end of the Bible somewhere, you'll find it eventually. After the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, next one. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, to the end of the chapter. And this is where it comes. And this is what he writes to these Christians. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further directions. This is God's word and we need help to understand it. Let's just pray a moment and ask God to help us to understand this scripture. Lord God, we thank you that you've preserved this particular letter and these particular verses for our benefit. We want to understand what you were saying through your servant Paul all those years ago to those Christians in Corinth so that we might apply it in our own lives in the right way. And we acknowledge that this is a passage that's been much misunderstood over the past and so I pray for clarity as I present it and for understanding by your spirit for each one of us that we may take to heart the warnings of your word and put into practice what we read and understand here. If there are those of us here who as yet don't know you personally, pray that in some way your word might also be relevant and applicable to us also in our own personal circumstances that we might come to understand who Jesus is and why he died, why he offered his body and blood, was poured out on a cross for us for our salvation. So help us we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now keep the Bible open in front of you because this is a difficult passage and you need to concentrate. I know it's hot and it's the end of a long day but it's good to focus on God's word and it helps me if you at least look awake and keep uh, facing in the right direction. The windows are all open I think. Yeah. Okay. If you go to church regularly then you'll be very familiar with the middle part of these verses that we read together, verses 23 to verse 26. Because quite often when Christians share together in the Lord's Supper, as Paul calls it here, the minister will read these verses out to explain why Christians break bread and drink wine together. In fact, these are very interesting verses because this is the earliest written record we have of anything Jesus said. I know the Gospels come first in the Bible, but they were written after this letter. This letter was written about 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. 
and the Gospels came later when they were collected together. Uh, what happened was that all the sayings of Jesus were carefully remembered and preserved by the early Christians, written down separately and collated together by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John when they put together the four different stories of the life of Jesus. So here we have the, some of the earliest words of Jesus recorded by the Apostle Paul, an explanation of how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So when Paul writes about what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you, he's not saying that he had a dramatic vision in which he had a sort of picture in his mind of a sort of film, you know, like a video of the upper room and he saw directly what Jesus said and recorded all the words down. He's saying, no, I've received these from the Lord because they came from the Lord and were passed down accurately to, to me by the early Christians. And the Gospel records which record these stories record very much the same words with some slight variations. So it's quite understandable that when Christians come together to break bread, we do it, Churches do it differently. Some churches have communion once a year, some twice a year, some have it every week. In this church we're kind of compromised and we have it once a month. But when we come together we'll often read these words quite understandably. But that is not the reason why they were first written in this letter by the Apostle Paul. The reason he wrote them was because of the whole section that we read. We need to look at what he said before, what he said afterwards, and then why he said this in the middle. This is just sort of an explanation, but it's quite important. If you look at the first bit from verse 17 through to verse 22, you'll see that Paul begins with a strong condemnation of how these Christians in Corinth were having their communion services and what they were doing. In fact, he actually says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're practicing. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And it's rare that these verses are read at communion services, hopefully for good reasons, because hopefully Christians are not being condemned when they meet around the Lord's table. Then after this explanation, if you look carefully, from verse 27 through to the end of the chapter to verse 34, there's an application of how Christians should observe the Lord's Supper. And these verses are not always read in churches, but sometimes they are read. And have probably caused, it's fair to say, more soul-searching and anguish on the part of sincere Christians than probably almost any of the verses in the Bible. Well, I can think of one or two more, but these are pretty serious verses. Uh, this wasn't helped because in the old version of the Bible, the King James Version, which many of us, including myself, grew up with, there are a couple of translations that are a bit confusing in modern English. If you look carefully, it says, whoever eats and drinks the bread in an unworthy manner. In the old version it said, unworthily. And where it says you eat and drink judgment on yourself, in the old version it actually says you eat and drink damnation on yourself. So many a sincere Christian, doubting his or her worthiness anyway, and fearing damnation, thought it was better not to eat and drink at all anyway. Now we'll see in a moment, that's not exactly what Paul was saying here and it's a little bit of a mistranslation and it gives the wrong meaning. But one writer puts it like this, the tragic result was this, the very table, that's the place where the bread and wine were shared, that is God's reminder and therefore his repeated gift of grace, the table where he affirmed again and again who and whose we are has, be, has been allowed to become a table of condemnation. 
for the very people who most truly need the assurance of acceptance that this table affords the sinful, the weak and the weary. However, you may ask, well, if that's not what it does mean, surely you began by saying that participating in the Lord's Supper could do you more harm than good and that people had died as a result. Yes, that is what it says. But not for the reasons you might think or fear. So, all I want to simply do in the time that remains is look at the problem. What were they guilty of? What were they doing wrong? And then look at the solution, how, how they should put it right, which is the second half of the verses, alright? So let me try and explain as we go along. First of all, the problem, you could summarise, the problem was a matter of abuse. Again, when Christians participate in the Lord's Supper, and I'll call it that, although we all call it by a different name, so depending on our church background, it's usually within the context of a church service. We normally have it as part of our normal service in this church. This table below is wheeled out and we serve uh, little cups, individual cups, and little pieces of bread that we all share together. However, the original Lord's Supper, on that night when Jesus was betrayed, was actually a Jewish Passover meal. It's called the Last Supper because it was the last meal that Jesus ate with his disciples on earth, his followers. It's called a supper because it was an evening meal. We would probably call it dinner, but somehow the Lord's dinner just doesn't sound right to me. But that's all it means. And it was a Jewish Passover meal. Jewish people met and still meet to celebrate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And they have this meal together. And Jesus met for this Passover meal and as part of the meal he gave it a new meaning. He took some of the bread that they shared together at the beginning of the meal and he said, this, this bread is my body which is going to be given for you. And we said, it's given for you. And then he took a cup of wine in the Passover ceremony. There are four different cups of wine. This is probably the third one. And he said, this cup represents my blood which will be poured out for people. Speaking about his coming sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus came into the world. If you're not a Christian, why did Jesus come into the world? He came into the world to forgive you for the wrong things you've done and to put you right with God. And when Christians meet together and celebrate this, we celebrate the fact that Jesus did this for us and we rejoice in God's goodness as we think back and remember him. Now, among Christians, especially those like the Corinthians who didn't come from a Jewish background, the Passover element wasn't continued when they did this in remembrance of Jesus. What did happen was that when the early Christians met together, and you can read this in the fifth book in the Bible, after the Gospels comes Acts, you can read what they did, and the early Christians, one of the things they did was what was called the breaking of bread, which was probably, again, just a meal. The Christians came together as a group of people like we are doing this evening, but instead of us all sitting in rows, in pews, looking at the back of one another's heads, Christians met together in homes. And they shared together in meals. And as part of the meal, the climax probably of the meal, they remembered that meal that Jesus had with his disciples when they broke bread and drank some wine together. And it became a very important part of their life. In fact, it came to have a special name when they met together, had a meal, 
and broke bread and drank wine in remembrance of Jesus. It was called the love feast. In Greek it's called, you'll have heard the word if you've been around the church, the word agape, which is usually the word that's used of God's love for us, his special love. It was called the agape. And it seemed that this was the practice in the church in Corinth when Christians came together. Now, what Paul is condemning here is not that they met together for a meal to celebrate the death of Jesus. What he's criticising is the way that they did it. We can't be too sure about all the details because we don't know a great deal about how people ate and drank in meals and homes in the ancient world. They've only excavated buildings and things like that. But we can be sure about the problem itself, which was a problem of abuse. The first problem was that the rich members of the church were abusing the poorer members. And this was seen in the way that they celebrated these love feasts, these meals. Uh, Christian meetings, as I said, were held in homes. And most homes weren't all that big, so you usually chose someone who was rich to have the meeting in because they had a big front room. Or in those days, they had two main rooms for eating. Well, they had what was called the triclinium, which was a kind of dining room that seated about a dozen people. And then if it overflowed, you, got, you went into the atrium, which was the courtyard, and you could get maybe 50 people in there. And the host would provide food and drink for everybody, but also the guests would also bring their own food along. It's kind of like one of these church potluck suppers. You know where you all bring your contributions and tray bakes and things, although we now learn in the church these are all illegal in their health and safety. But anyway, they didn't have this ridiculous bureaucracy in the first century. But in the ancient world, in the world of the Greeks and the Romans, society was very carefully stratified between rich people, poor people, working people, the aristocracy. So a rich person would never dream of having a poor person come and eat in his dining room. At most, he'd stick him out in the courtyard. And it seems that what was happening in Corinth was that the Christians were carrying on this practice in their churches, when they met together as a church of God's people. The rich people met together and enjoyed the best of food and drink, while the poorer folks sat outside with much poorer food. Indeed, if we follow what it says in the New International Translation of the Bible that we have, and it's not absolutely sure, it appeared that what happened was, they had a meeting, like a church meeting, and the rich people all started on their food long before the poor folk who were working or slaves and were still getting back from their work, they had their big feast, and by the time the poor folk got there, there was nothing left for them. And such practices, Paul says, are completely wrong. You are despising the church of God, humiliating the poor, those who have nothing. Verse 22, Paul says, as a result, one of you remains hungry in church, another one gets drunk. Now he's not talking against specifically gluttony or drunkenness, although the Bible does speak against both things. Or against rich people having dinner parties. He tells them you can do this anytime in your own homes. What he's so concerned about is the purpose of these love feasts. It's for Christians to celebrate what Jesus did for them. And what they're doing therefore is not just abusing the poor, they're abusing the Lord's Supper. It would be bad enough if they were doing this at any ordinary meal. But this isn't any ordinary meal. It's the Lord's Supper at which rich, overfed, drunk Christians sit down with poor, hungry, thirsty Christians and then they eat from a loaf of bread and drink some wine and sing We Are One in the Spirit or something to that effect. And the bread and the wine are a sign that all of us have come to the foot of the cross and found God's forgiveness and that we're all one people in Christ. 
In Christ there is no distinction of rich or poor, of male or female, of educated or uneducated, of class distinctions, of gender distinctions. We are God's one new people. In Galatians it says, we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All one in Christ Jesus. And that is why Paul goes on to write these verses in verses 23 to 26 because he is reminding them of what happened on the night when Jesus was being betrayed. That's literally what it says and he's probably giving them a little nudge and saying this is what people did when they betrayed Jesus and you are betraying Jesus by the way that you're doing this. He reminds them of what the bread and the wine mean. Through the death of Jesus God has made this one new people. But the message that they're giving out he said, you're supposed to be proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But in fact, all you're proclaiming is the old distinctions of society that existed before you came to Christ. They're eating and drinking without recognising the body of Christ. Verse 29, the body there refers to the local church. The Lord's Supper, in effect, was an acted sermon about God's new people that all met together in Christ, one in Christ. And if that were not bad enough, Paul says, they're failing to practice what they preach and they're abusing the Lord himself. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the, of the Lord. The sin of the Corinthians was not to do with their character, that they ate and drank unworthily. For none of us is worthy to participate in the bread and wine. We come to the Lord's table recognising we're not worthy and seeking the worthiness of Christ. No, the sin of the Corinthians was not related to their character, but their actions. They were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner by the way that they were behaving towards their fellow Christians who, like them, had been accepted by God through the death of Jesus. So, to say to, they say by their actions to the poorer members of the congregation, we are better than you. And denying the very essence of what Jesus had done. They were denying, and guilty, denying the Lord, guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And by behaving this way, the rich Christians in the church at Corinth were abusing the poor, abusing the Lord's Supper, abusing the Lord, and that's why Paul says, my verdict is, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, this is such a serious business, that this is why he says, as we'll see in a moment, the Lord will not allow this con to continue, but will bring his judgment upon a church like this. And in fact, that judgment has already started to take place. So look then at the solution, which I've called the matter of judgment. Verses 27, mainly to 34. Now, it may be a great relief to you at this point to learn that the issue here and the threat of judgment in respect of the Lord's Supper is not related to our personal unworthiness. But I would suggest we don't breathe too easy at this point. You see, most of us who've been around as Christians, particularly in evangelical churches, we stress the importance of a personal faith in Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus, and that is absolutely essential. However, the New Testament places an equal emphasis on the fact that being a Christian not only brings you into a vertical relationship with God, but it brings you into a horizontal relationship with other Christians. One that has to be lived out in that most difficult and demanding of contexts, the local church. And this is most clearly expressed when we meet together around the Lord's table in communion. Because communion means communion with God, 
and communion with one another. And so that is why he says in verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. When we come to the Lord's table, we not only examine our hearts and see what we've done and failed to do and seek God's forgiveness, all that's right and good, but that's not what this passage is focusing on. It says we need to focus on, are we really recognizing or discerning the body of the Lord? Notice he doesn't add the blood here because he's focusing on the body. Representing the church, the local church. In self-examination, we not only look within, not only look up to God, but we're to look around. So here's the punchline now and the hard bit. How are we getting along with fellow Christians? How are you getting along with the members of your local church? One of the great tragedies today is that many Christians are not getting on well with the local church and they've actually opted out of the local church. Such a thing would be totally inconceivable in the New Testament. You met a Christian and said, what local fellowship do you belong to? And they said, I don't, it's just Jesus and me. They'd think you were heretical, which it is. I know it's tough. But the demonstration, Jesus said, the way the world will know that you're my disciples is because you love one another as I have loved you. It is seen in our relationships, worked out with one another in local churches, which are God's plan, his visible sign to the world that something new is happening in society that's not based on your status, not based on whether you wear designer gear or not, not based on how smart you are or what kind of job you've got or what part of Edinburgh you live in or don't live in and what size car you've got or whatever else it may be. Nothing wrong with those distinctions, but they have nothing to do with our acceptance in Christ. You see, we may not, in Charlotte Chapel, you know, some of us break bread in the dining room and others in the courtyard. But believe me, it's possible to break bread downstairs, not speaking to someone who you know sits up in the balcony. There may not even be physical separation, but spiritual separation with issues that have lain unresolved for years and years and years. And within churches there can be groups and cliques and in-groups and out-groups. And I simply want to impress, if you forget everything else about this this evening, I want to impress on you the seriousness with which the New Testament focuses on the relationship that we should have with one another as Christians in local churches. And it is so serious that if we get it wrong and persist in it and refuse to do anything about it, then this scripture says God will bring judgment upon a church that does that. He says you've got two choices here. You either judge yourself or God will judge you. He says the wisest and most sensible step is to judge yourself, self-judgment. But what he says, if a Christian is prepared to do this, if you're prepared to put things right with the person who has sinned against you, notice when the Bible talks about this and Jesus talked about it, he never said, wait until the person comes and sorts it out with you. He said, if someone sinned against you, you the sinned against are to go to the person who's done it and try and put it right. 
and go again and take the elders with you and if it doesn't work then that's it finally but make every effort and if you do that then all will be well but he says if we fail to judge ourselves in this respect if we carry on in this way living a lie by breaking bread with other Christians and drinking a cup together and yet have discriminations and breakdowns in our relationships and unresolved issues then you will eat and drink judgment on yourself and notice now we come to these almost some people think frightening verses look carefully what it says he says this has already begun to take place in the church of Corinth look at what he says verse 29 a man ought to be examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself the body of the Lord the local church that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep fallen asleep is Christian terminology for died now notice carefully what he is saying and what he is not saying he is not saying that all sickness or death is the result of sin that is if you sin you'll get sick and die but he is saying it is a possibility that you should consider especially where there is dissension within a church and where the Lord's name is being dishonored notice also he is not saying that the particular people who were the most guilty were the ones to fall sick and die rather he's talking about the general health of the congregation which is in a bad state in Corinth some believe related to a famine at this time and all the suffering that this brought he is also not saying that sickness and death is God's only means of judgment on a church there are churches I know that certainly have known in the past that are racked by descent where the members are all fit as a fiddle and don't practice any diets but the spiritual health of the congregation is in a desperate state which is far more serious though not so obvious to most people and finally most important of all he is not saying that this judgment on the Lord has eternal consequences the translation is wrong that says you eat and drink damnation in fact he says exactly the opposite he says you eat and drink judgment on yourself from the Lord and the Lord judges you in a temporal sense in this life to save you from the eternal consequence of being condemned with the world can you see what it says there when we are judged by the Lord we are being disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world not eternal but temporal and what he says is this is part of God's loving discipline of his children for their good to prevent something far worse happening to us our ultimate judgment before God's judgment throne just before the service some of the elders and I were praying in the vestries we always do on uh, before all the services and I was pointing out if you're here this morning you may recall that the same thing came out this morning that God judged the people of Israel rather than letting them fall into sin by sending a drought I didn't plan these two services this way but I simply suggest to you that as a church God may be saying something to us drought this morning sickness and death this evening that sometimes God in his love disciplines us for our own good 
to prevent something worse happening for the honour and glory of his name and for those of us who bear the name of Christ. I don't know. I'm the pastor. I've got some judgment on where we are as a church. We're not where I would want us to be yet. And I'm not where I want to be yet. But I know this, if God speaks to us, he does it in love because we are his children. The word discipline there is the word used for child-rearing discipline. And I simply say that maybe God is saying something to us as a church. You see, most people think the worst thing that can happen to you is that you get sick and die. Jesus said there's something far more worse than that. He said, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Fear him who has the power to cast body and soul into hell. There is a far greater consequence than a drought, a blackout in America, a job loss, even a bereavement. It is your eternal destiny that is at stake. And where a church bears the name of Christ, and fails to live in a way that honours God, it is a most serious matter. These days the tax man is trying to persuade most of us to do self-assessment rather than getting him to do it. I suspect the purpose of this is to save money, but the adverts tell us that if we do it, we will save money. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. But I know on the basis of 1 Corinthians 11, that we are far better off, says the Bible, says the word of God, practising self-judgment and waiting for divine judgment. For if we truly belong to the Lord, then he will judge his people rather than letting us suffer a far worse consequence. Or more importantly, dishonour his name by the way that we relate to one another. So, I leave this final question with you. What is the Lord's assessment of us when we meet together to share in the Lord's Supper? Does he praise us? Or do our meetings, does our worship do more harm than good? This is God's word. Let's reflect on it as we pray together.